So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hi, it's Tom here. And before we get into this episode of the Spiked podcast, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to us this year. It's been one of our best years yet. Our readership is growing. We're reaching more and more people with our pro-democracy, pro-freedom message. And it's all thanks to you for reading and sharing and crucially donating. Spiked is free. We want to keep it free. And it's your donations that allow us to do that. So if you have supported us this year, thank you very much. And if you haven't and you'd like to, why not give us a gift this Christmas? It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button in the top right corner. One-off donations are brilliant, but even better for us is a monthly donation. Just £5 per month can help us take the fight into 2020, which is shaping up to be as important a year in politics, if not more, than the last. So once again, that's spiked-online.com and that big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much, and now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Tom Slater, filling in for Fraser Myers this week, and joining me we have Spike's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike's columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Today we'll be discussing the London Bridge attack, Trump's visit to London, and what the final week of campaigning in the election might have in store. Two people have died in the terrorist incident on London Bridge. I want to pay tribute to the extraordinary bravery of those members of the public who physically intervened. Jack's father wrote, Jack will be livid. His death has been used to further an agenda of hate. Jailed in 2012 for his part in an Al-Qaeda-inspired plot. Dangerous prisoners like Usman Khan, they were automatically released. Another general election campaign has been tainted by another brutal jihadist attack on Britain's streets. Last Friday, Usman Khan, a formerly convicted terrorist out on licence after serving an eight-year sentence, went on a rampage in London Bridge. He was attending a conference on prisoner rehabilitation, it turned out, and he launched a knife attack that eventually killed two people and injured three others. So it's a scene of incredible barbarism, but also incredible heroism as citizens and even some ex-cons fought Khan armed with little more than a fire extinguisher and a narwhal tusk um, until the police arrived and killed him. Brendan, a lot of questions have been raised by this about sentencing, about our approach to terrorism, what it means for the election. We'll get into all of that. But what was your initial response to this attack? Um, I thought it was everything about it was striking. The attack itself was horrendous. Um, The fact that this guy was attacking essentially people who were involved in his rehabilitation and other people's rehabilitation, I thought was really striking too. And the heroism of the citizens, as you say, the civilians who uh, intervened and used anything that they could get their hands on to stop him in his tracks and allow the police to kill him, which was absolutely the right thing to do, given that he had what looked like a bomb strapped around his waist. It turned out to be a fake bomb. So uh, all of it was striking. I thought the, the two things that struck me most was firstly, on the one side, you have the cowardice of officialdom and the cowardice of the political class who still refuse to have an honest, open, frank discussion about the problem of Islamic terrorism and often won't even use the word Islamism in relation to this terrorism and wants us to brush it under the carpet, don't look back in anger. All we're supposed to do is express some grief, 
be a bit shocked and then move on with our lives without interrogating why these things happen. So you have that kind of moral cowardice of the establishment versus the bravery of ordinary people who ignored the advice to run and hide, which is the official advice when there's a terrorism attack, and instead took direct action to prevent this extremist from killing more people. And it seems pretty likely he would have killed many more people. He tragically killed two people in a very short period of time. He would probably have killed more. That was the really striking thing for me, the the contrast between uh, a ruling class which refuses to honestly address the question of why a relatively significant number of people born and raised in this country want to kill their fellow citizens. What does that tell us about the atomization and the division of contemporary British society versus ordinary people who confront this challenge head on? So it told us a very interesting story, I feel, about modern Britain. Mm. So, of course, this has quickly turned into a, a big discussion about about sentencing, and it's become a bit of a political football in the campaign, I think it's fair to say. So Khan was originally convicted in 2012 for preparing acts of terrorism, including a plot to um, bomb the London Stock Exchange, among other things. He was originally given an, what's called an indeterminate sentence for public protection, meaning he would have had to been subject to a parole board review if he was ever going to be let out. It was appealed, it was reduced to a fixed sentence. He ended up serving eight years without the parole board even needing to approve his release. So there's been a lot of argument over you know, who is to blame for this? It's in part a result of a law change from Labour in 2008. But then again, many of people have pointed out the Tories have been in power for a very long time. Why didn't they do anything to change it? But Ella, kind of beyond the the kind of immediate, you know, who's at fault, you know, what, what do you think we should take away from this in relation to protection of the public? You know, why was this man out in the streets? What's the kind of deeper problem here, do you think? It's very difficult when you're talking about a situation like this, because there's two levels to it. One, there's the personal level of the fact that two people have died. And so, you know, there's been coverage of quotes from Jack Merritt's father, David Merritt. Jack Merritt being one of the victims. One of the victims. And the other one was Saskia Jones. And people being appreciative of that personal story and that personal tragedy. But then aside from that, there's also the political issue that this wasn't a planned attack against Jack and Saskia. This was attack against the general public. And this guy didn't want to kill a specific person. He wanted to kill anyone that was a member of the British public. Uh, and so then it is political um, and mm. it's an act of terrorism, which means it is political, which means that politicians do have to take a side on it and do have to talk about it. So the outrage about Johnson saying, you know, this was the fault of a lefty government. I mean, Johnson's never, or actually I'd rather say, Johnson does choose his words um, and he chooses them to be provocative. But I mean, it's a political statement and it's up for question. And the thing that's made me very uncomfortable is, and Brendan, you wrote about this, this kind of fear of actually talking about the issue at hand, which is terrorism, because you'll offend the victims of the tragedy, of the incident, of the attack, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think we have to really make a conscious effort to differentiate those, um, because actually, even though this sounds incredibly callous, Jack and Saskia are dead. And so the question is now, how do we prevent other people from dying at the hands of terrorists? And that is a discussion that the whole of society has to have. And we have to have all the views on the table. I mean, this is why I might disagree with you guys slightly. I don't like the knee-jerk reaction for longer sentences because I think part of the problem 
with the current system for dealing with terrorism is that you have this very emotional response from politicians or from other people. We have to do something. And so let's just do this. And you've got, you know, a Brexit party MEP coming up and saying, oh, well, when we got rid of the death penalty, they told us life was going to mean life. And you think, whoa, hang on, we're talking about the death penalty now, you know. So I'd like a reasoned and calm approach to this because the other end of it is we've got a kind of increasing problem with censorship, not just of attacks, but also of people saying, you know, lock people up who sympathise with terrorists in the form of words or opinions. And it's all very complicated. Mm. And rather than people coming out and saying, you can't talk about this or lock them up and throw away the key or having these knee-jerk reactions, we actually need to have a very, very reasoned, rational and slow, I think, and considered a response to this. So, Brendan, what do you think our response should be to all of this? I think the key problem is not a criminal justice one, it's a kind of political cultural one and an unwillingness to face up to the fact that there is a problem at all. I mean, I thought the response to the attack was just uh, unbelievable. I mean, the number of people who are saying we need greater de-radicalization help for these people. We need more mental health support. Corbyn mentioned the demise of mental health assistance for certain prisoners. Basically, they were saying these people, like Usman Khan, the London Bridge killer, basically they're saying they need therapy. I mean, that's really what the emphasis was. And the implication behind a lot of the coverage is that people like Usman Khan are essentially victims themselves. They don't really know what they're doing. They're caught up in, you know, they've been infected by a disease. You know, radicalization is now used in an entirely passive way, as if you look at a video on the internet or you hear a lecture by some evil imam and then you become radicalized, you become infected and, and your actions are beyond your own control. They're talked about in a very sympathetic way. Um, and if you just compare that to the response to far right terrorism, for example, it is so dramatically different. Far right terrorists are seen as responsible for what they do. They are seen as conscious, consciously evil, and many of them are, when, uh, particularly when they carry out mass attacks like Christchurch or the Pittsburgh synagogue attack and so on. But they are seen as responsible for their behaviour, they are conscious, they're bad people, whereas these Islamist terrorists are often seen as unwitting and victims in their own right and needing therapeutic intervention rather than what people call for after far-right terrorism, which is censorship of the media, more control on the internet and harsher punishment for these fascists. So I think that really has to be taken into account, that difference. And there's a racism there. There's this idea that because the Muslim community has always been put at the top of the hierarchy of victimhood, they're seen not only as needing love and attention in that kind of slightly patronizing way, but also as being almost childlike. You know, they're such victims, they can't help themselves when they lash out. So the whole discussion demonstrates the way in which identity politics actually demeans the Muslim community in these various different Mm. ways. I think our response has to be getting serious about Islamic terrorism, the question of why it's growing, where it comes from, what gives rise to it. I do think there needs to be a firmer criminal justice response to terrorist acts. The fact that this guy got out of jail after eight years, despite having planned um, quite explicitly to massacre the dogs, as he views us, of British society, that does need to, we do need an inquiry into that, why that happened. I think terrorism is different to other crimes. That's what I would say. I don't think we should lock up and throw away the key in relation to anyone. No one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond rehabilitation. But I do think terrorists, because they express a contempt for civilization itself and for all inhabitants of society, not just an individual who's pissed them off, 
they do need to be treated slightly differently, I think, to uh, run-of-the-mill killers, run-of-the-mill robbers and so on. That's what I would say. But the key issue is a political, cultural one. Are we going to take the problem of Islamist terrorism seriously or not? Mm. Are you looking for the perfect gift this Christmas for your most pro-Brexit, pro-freedom loved ones? Then look no further than Spike's online shop. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs and tote bags sporting all of your favourite Spike slogans from ban nothing, question everything to love Europe, hate the EU. We even have some new designs coming very, very soon. So to have a look at the range and to make your purchases, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the dark blue shop button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. So now let's turn back to the other events this week and and the election. Uh, Taking a bit of a sidestep, Donald Trump was in town this week, as were all other NATO leaders for the NATO summit in London. Um, The backdrop to this being NATO's 70th anniversary, a lot of tensions within the alliance over whether it's Turkish President Erdogan's massacring of the Kurds in northern Syria, comments made by French President Emmanuel Macron that the alliance was brain dead. A lot of obviously Trump being very upset that a lot of NATO partners not spending their full 2%. Uh, But for our purposes and discussing the election, it is fascinating how central Trump has become to this election. It's really been brought to a point this week. Effectively, had Boris Johnson shunning any kind of bilateral with him, didn't want to have his photo taken with him. When he was asked about him at press conferences, he wouldn't even mention his name. It's kind of like a Voldemort character. It was quite interesting. Meanwhile, we've got Jeremy Corbyn trying to, again, make this the issue of the Tories going to sell off the NHS to America post-Brexit, writing him a letter, trying to confront Trump, um, not actually managing to do it at a dinner. Um, but Ella, what's your response to all this, the way in which Trump has become such a big figure, not only in the American culture, war, but here as well in our election? Well, it's really bizarre because all the stuff you just read out is so incredibly childish. I mean, for a serious, supposedly serious organisation like NATO and a serious summit, um, at a time when there are very serious political issues to deal with. The main coverage is a sort of behind the scenes shot of Macron, Johnson, um, and Trudeau essentially bitching with Princess Anne about Trump <laughs> in the most bizarre way. I mean, obviously people are human beings and you know, these things go on and there's a whole other discussion you can have about allowing private political engagement to happen without unseen cameras. However, this is the kind of level I think that we're at. And it's been very interesting the way that Johnson and Corbyn have dealt with Trump and the way that the media's responded. There was an entire section on the Today programme of the presenters quizzing a Labour Party member about why Corbyn wasn't able to talk to Trump. Did he not make it across the room? Was there a drink in his hand? I mean, you think, Jesus Christ, (laughs) am I seriously listening to this? And why should anyone care? And it's because Trump has become the figure of... Uh, he's either the kingmaker or he's the person that's going to bring everyone down. And so then, you know, what, what Corbyn and the Labour Party want to suggest is that Johnson is just one of Trump's puppets and Trump is just one of Putin's puppets and, you know, the mm. puppet master goes on and on and on. And on the other hand, Johnson's trying to walk this tightrope of initially, you know, using the fact that he was personal friends with the president to say that I could be the one that does serious trade talks. I will keep the special relationship. And now that there's that bit of a sour taste about Trump, I think probably quite sensibly tactically avoiding him. I mean, it's interesting that Trump even said, I can get on with any prime minister, which is 
I mean, that's a change, isn't it? <laughs> and someone must have had to really sit him down and tell him to do that. But the, uh, the end result you get after watching the coverage is these political leaders are playing at games uh, and certainly playing up for the media because I think they know how these interactions are going to be interpreted. And this very childish anti-Trump game doesn't convince any of us who are seriously opposed to Trump's views. It just convinces us that our political leaders are a bit foolish. Brendan. I completely agree that the anti-Trump stuff is childish. I think it was a mistake for Boris not to meet him because I think he, the conservatives are playing this whole election so cautiously. They're so risk averse. That's why they put out a flimsy manifesto. That's why they openly expressed hope that no one would even read or talk about their manifesto. And that's presumably why Boris was so nervous about Trump's visit in case he was seen with this bad man and then the Guardian and, and, the Twitterati would go mad about it. I thought that was just cowardice. You are the prime minister of the UK and you want to be again. You should meet with the president of the United States and be photographed with him. That's the way it goes. Plus, a lot of ordinary people don't share the chattering class's visceral contempt for Trump. They don't see him as the most evil person of all time. So I thought, I thought that was a mistake. I also thought the bitching with Macron and Trudeau and Princess Anne, I, I just found that quite repugnant, to be honest. I mean, you know, it, it really demonstrates that anti-Trumpism is the only way in which certain figures in the West can get any sense of moral authority now. I mean, look at someone like Trudeau. He's a complete imbecile. His his vote was slashed in the recent Canadian elections. He spent a lot of his youth in blackface, uh, you know, <laughs> just a, 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 has a very racist approach or previously did have a very racist approach, including blacking up his tongue. I mean, he was committed to the mockery of black people, far worse than anything Trump has done. Trump's never done blackface so far as we know, just orange face. And Macron <laughs> is... You you know, has spent the past year every weekend attacking his own citizens in the most violent way, injuring some of them for life, has so little moral authority in his own country. And Princess Anne, some jumped up hereditary idiot who uh, who only has her presence in public life because of her father's sperm, let's be honest. Who, who the hell do these people think they are? Um, bitching about a man who was voted for by 63 million people. I found that really awful, actually, and it just made me think... I'd much rather be ruled by Trump than than Princess Anne, because uh, at least we can get rid of Trump, whereas Anne, we're stuck with her forever, like a, a bad flu or something. So I found that really awful. I thought it really demonstrated the way in which hating Trump is now one of the key means through which Western liberals, in quote marks, now gain a sense of moral authority. It also demonstrated NATO is well past its sell-by date. I mean, this was a Cold War institution which only worked when America was was ruling the West and NATO was an expression of America's domination of, of, of Western countries vis-a-vis -vis the evil empire in the East. All of that is completely frayed now. And you can see that in the battles between France versus America, Canada versus America. Uh, it doesn't hold together at all. NATO is, is a spent force. And if there was any honesty in politics, it would just disband and we would have these competitive clashes between nation states out in the open. But anti-Trumpism isn't that. This is just cheap moral grandstanding by politicians and princesses who have no right to grandstand against anyone. So let's move on to Labour for a second, because obviously the, the Trump visit just became another opportunity, not only for them to posture against Trump, but also to um, trot out again their kind of argument about the NHS. 
um, being sold off after Brexit. We've also seen a lot of kind of pretty eye-catching things happen this week. Labour making this bold claim that family is going to be something like £6,700 better off as a consequence of their tax and spend plans, these things being pulled apart. Now, again, the kind of, you know, the sort of right-wing press's reaction is like, oh, he wants to give everyone a pony is, is obviously limited and a bit... Um, doesn't necessarily get to the heart of, of what's wrong with that program, but there is an element of them just trying to kind of appeal to anyone, anyhow. There's a level of desperation, isn't there? Really I think at this it's point? and I think it's backfiring because I think what people are understanding is that rather than this being a really exciting uh, economic plan, that actually it's just a ruse to buy voters. Mm. It really simply is. I mean, you've seen that with the whole suggestion that they give money back to the WASPy women, the pensions. That doesn't seem to have really secured them that many votes, even though that was a direct plea to the kind of middle class female voters that they are appealing to in other ways in relation um, to their anti-Brexit stance. But when it comes to things like the scaremongering around the NHS, it's the same thing. It's essentially lying and saying that it is a given fact that if the Tories get in, we will have US style medical care and you will have to pay $600 for an inhaler and all these videos they're putting out. I mean, that is not true. There is questions about what kind of talks are going to happen in the future with trade deals, with all the kind of political manoeuvring that goes on between the UK and the US, and we should be watchful of that. But the idea that if Johnson gets into number 10, then bam, the next day, you can all forget about the NHS and we'll be in the you know really unfavourable position that most Americans are in, which is having privatised healthcare, is not true. And so we want to say to Labour, please stop treating us like mugs, because actually... Most voters, even if they haven't been paying that much attention to the ins and outs of all of the bitching that's been going on in this uh, election campaign, know that Labour stands on a particular position, mostly in relation to Brexit, that the Tories are defined in other ways. And all this mess and froth about and lies about the NHS or just giving people essentially wads of cash in order to buy off their votes isn't going to work. So I think, and this has been a problem for Labour for years, treating people like they are just worried about the bread in their hand mm. and how they're going to feed themselves the next day. And like Simpletons is, I hope, going to backfire against them because the general public are much, much more intellectual than that. Mm. Nevertheless, Brendan, we have seen a bit of a tightening of the polls in recent weeks, although it does seem to have stalled. Although it's worth noting that um, we're recording this on Thursday morning, there was a Comrades poll out today, which suggested that the Tories are on about a 10 point lead, which is the same as they were last week. So maybe that's all um, drawing to a close. But Brendan, what have you made of this campaign so far more broadly? Because, you know, it's as we're constantly told, it's and as is true, this is an incredibly significant election. There's all kind of political realignment that's going on under the surface. Yet at the same time, you've got a Tory party, which seemingly doesn't want to say anything, doesn't want to say boo to a goose for fear of um, mm. of losing um, their lead. And then you've got a Labour party, which is, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at this campaign, yet really doesn't have any of the dynamism that it had last time. What are your kind of thoughts as we go into this last week of campaigning? Yeah, that's a very good description of the whole thing. I mean, the tightening of the polls or the shifting of the polls, I just don't understand. I've stopped looking at polls now because I find it really depressing and just it just confuses me of course the huge YouGov one predicts a, a very large uh, conservative majority whether that will change or not is is completely unpredictable because British politics is unpredictable at the moment and and there is a huge political realignment going on the most interesting polls are the ones indicating that significant numbers of working class voters are turning away from labor which has been happening for a long time but that it looks like that could become even more intense and uh, lots of working class people seem to be keen to shift to the Tories in a way that they might not have done in the past those kinds of earthquakes will be really interesting 
But as you say, Tom, this ought to be, uh, this is in fact an incredibly important election. There is so much at stake in this election. This is the Brexit election, regardless of politicians who will say to us, no, it's about the NHS and whether you can afford to get on a bus and all that stuff. It's a Brexit election. A YouGov poll found that most people uh, are voting on the basis of their views on Brexit. That's still the issue they want to resolve. And democracy is at, itself is at stake. The question of whether the political class does as the public instructs it. That's what this election is fundamentally about. But it feels really flat and risk averse uh, from all sides. You have the Tory party putting out their slim, boring manifestos. You have the Labour Party trying to distract attention from the massive, profound democratic question by, as Ella says, just throwing money at people saying, please vote for us, we'll give you extra cash. I think what's clear is that the political establishment is incapable of rising to the occasion and rising to uh, the question that was put to it by the people, which is, are we a sovereign nation or not? Are we a democratic nation or not? Are we going to leave the EU or not? So the public is more than willing to have this deep, profound discussion. The political class is running away from it. And that's why there is this disparity between the public desire for uh, a democratic debate and the political class's desire just to run away from that as much as possible. So Ella, we're going into the final week of campaigning, you know, what are you going to be looking out for as we go forward? I think that I've given up on the idea that this vote that I may or may not cast is going to make me feel good. <laughs> I think most people feel like that, that the unique nature of this um, election is that in many, many cases, people are going to be voting against the person that they hate rather than for the person they love. But nevertheless, I think the positive thing that we can take out of it is that different from previous elections, people are changing up their preferences and people are thinking outside the box and people are making new alliances and new bedfellows that they thought previously they never ever would. And rather than that being a weakening of principle, I actually think it's a strengthening of principle because people on both sides of the Brexit debate, um, even though I disagree with Remainers, the Remain and Leave side are kind of hardening in the fact that this is a very serious issue. And especially with Leave voters, prioritising that argument for democracy over everything else. You've been listening to the Spikes podcast. Please do subscribe, rate and review. And if you can spare some cash this Christmas and you'd like to keep Spiked fighting into 2020, please do consider making a donation. Anything you can give is greatly appreciated. Just go to spikes-online.com and hit that big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much and see you next week on the other side of the Brexit election. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 